Welcome to Views of Resilience, what school communities and families learned during the pandemic, a podcast for educators and school communities everywhere, developed by Boston Children's Hospital Neighborhood Partnerships, or BCHNP. This is a podcast series of three episodes that highlight the ways in which educators, families, and students demonstrated strength and care for one another, and learnings and strategies they will bring into the school year ahead. To access our free resources for educators, please visit viewsofresiliencepodcast.com. Thank you for being with us today. My name is Molly Jordan, and I use the pronouns she, her, and hers. I am a social worker and manager for BCHMP's Training and Access Project, or TAP. TAP provides free trainings for educators in school communities everywhere. I'll be the narrator for this episode, Resilience and Self-Awareness Among Educators. In this episode, we talk with teachers from Boston, Tracy Coots, who is a K-2 kindergarten teacher, and Camila Welch, who is a high school English teacher. We also speak with Joe Sara, an assistant principal at a K-8 school. We ask these educators to share the ways in which they have continued to move forward in the midst of constant adversity. We learn about how they have become more aware of their areas of strength, as well as the areas where they need more support, and how this has affected their ability to respond instead of react when facing difficulties during their school day. The COVID-19 pandemic has intensified the struggles, losses, and inequities that have been affecting many people in our country for so long. It has changed the structures of our institutions and systems and ways of doing things. Educators and families are managing uncertainties about how to keep everyone safe while still meeting students' academic, social, and emotional needs. School communities are juggling these challenges alongside other hardships, such as heightened emotions, systemic racism, and environmental stressors. Research tells us that the pandemic widened inequities for Black, Indigenous, People of Color, or BIPOC families, including greater food insecurity and discrimination and reduced access to health care. Navigating the pandemic has been a difficult journey and stories of hardship can be found everywhere. However, amidst the struggles and challenges, school communities have found ways to adapt and make modifications to support educators, students, and their families. Our hope for this podcast series is to highlight this narrative, the ways in which educators, families, and students demonstrated strength and care for one another. We spoke to educators about what they needed during this time, what they gave to others, and what they learned about themselves in the process. We asked our educators to share their own definition of resilience. We hear first from K2 kindergarten teacher, Tracy Coots. Hi, my name is Tracy Coots, and I am a K2 teacher. Resilience means pushing forward and continuing to try my best when I'm faced with obstacles or challenges. I don't dwell on the negative for very long. I'll recognize and address the situation, but quickly start to think about what am I going to do about it. Research tells us that the most common outcome of the pandemic will be resilience. Resilience can look different for many people. It can be continuing to move forward each day despite difficult circumstances, tolerating uncertainty, grieving painful losses, seeking support from family and friends, and finding hope in the future. However, we know that resilience is not experienced the same way depending on a person's identity. For BIPOC individuals, due to their lived experiences, the concept of resilience can have a different meaning. High school English teacher Camila Welch shares her thoughts on resiliency. My name is Camila Welch and I'm an English teacher. So when I think about the word resilience, generally it's a triggering word, given it's often used to describe and applaud people of color for quote-unquote all that they have overcome. It often implies complicity in the institutional and generational neglect 
of our people and communities so that the odds turn into something that's eternal or an unchanging truth for others to build their research and careers on. While I recognize that it's often a term that seems as endearing for certain people, for me it's always been a triggering word. A person's cultural background, such as their cultural values, language, customs, and norms, play a role in their interpretation and perceptions of resilience. Our interviewees discuss how their cultural background has helped them to overcome adversity. First, we hear from Camila. The first way that I think about it is actually tied to my relationship with God as shaping everything, even before ethnicity, race. Um, I see God as the main anchor that has sustained me through everything I've experienced thus far in life. For me, God is the only constant. So internalizing and believing that truth frames how I see adversity. I understand that adversity is something that will pass, and that it's really just my response to it that matters even more, the perspective that I choose to have and what I can learn from it so that the adversity becomes part of my growth rather than stagnating it. Unfortunately, most of the adversity I've experienced has been tied in some way to whiteness and its priorities. And from a young age, I've tried to not internalize low self-worth based on the racist ideologies of this country. Joe Sara, an assistant principal at a K-8 school, shares how his cultural background has influenced his work with the community he serves. Hello, uh, my name is Joe Sara. I am an assistant principal at a a K-8 school. So my cultural background, um, my father is Middle Eastern, he's Palestinian, and my mother is uh, Colombian. And so in some ways, the ways that I am familiar or, or aware of our community, the community that I work with, is a community of immigrants. It's a community of folks who are living a dual life, living sort of in the present of where we are and where we come from. I was by birth born here, so in that way, it's a very um, distinction that's critical in that I didn't make the decision, but by default, it does give me some privileges that it does not give many of the members of our community, so I'm being very aware of that. And so one is the humility of understanding that and navigating guilt and the pressures of that and, and using it as an opportunity to really open doors for others. Tracy speaks about her privilege and how because of that privilege, she has not had to face the same adversities that many others have. Because of my privilege, sometimes I don't even consider how a situation I am in may be impacting others differently. When we went fully remote, I went out and got all the supplies and created a space for my oldest daughter to be able to participate in remote learning. We set up a separate area in our home where she could focus, be organized, and do her work without any distractions or interruptions. In my head, this was obviously what every parent was doing. Then remote learning started, and I quickly became aware of how unaware I was and all the adversities that my students were having to face. It was the first time in my teaching career that I was in all of their homes on a daily basis and witnessing the struggles that they had to overcome in order to learn remotely. I didn't have to face any of the same challenges, and because of that, I never even considered what it would have been like if I had more than one family living in my home, if I didn't have Wi-Fi or access to the internet or a computer, access to school supplies, money to pay my rent, space in my home for my child to learn, 
that was a huge eye-opener for me to recognize that many adversities that my students faced and how privileged I was that I didn't have to face any of them. All of our educators spoke about how important it is to be aware of who they are and how their own identities influence how they respond to things that happen in their school buildings. We first asked our educators to define self-awareness. Here are their responses. When I think about self-awareness, what comes to mind is when you as a person are keenly aware of your relationship to yourself and you don't ignore what you need to feel present and whole. For me, it means that I'm aware of what triggers me, who and what nurtures and feeds me, and what I feel is needed and necessary so that I can pour into other people. I, I would say that I would define awareness as an evolving state of mind and a state of heart. For me, awareness sort of happens on an individual base, but it's also a very relational context. So my awareness comes when I am engaging in the context of families is what am I hearing, what am I listening to, what is being asked, what is behind the conversation, and at the same time, what's present. What is, the, what is my gaze and what am I feeling and sensing? I think the awareness and realization are, are sort of an extension of one or the other. I would describe self-awareness as believing in myself and knowing what I'm capable of while also recognizing my feelings, my strengths, and my weaknesses in different situations. I think resiliency and self-awareness are directly connected. Resilience means pushing forward and continuing to try my best when I'm faced with obstacles or challenges. Well, that ability to push forward and continue on when faced with a challenge directly influences my self-awareness because by going through a challenging experience, I become more aware of what I'm capable of. Self-awareness helps us understand how we interpret others' social, emotional, and behavioral health. When we are self-aware, we are better able to recognize our internal cues and we have greater insight into our blind spots and the lens through which we interpret the world. Self-awareness also helps us to identify our areas of strength as well as areas where we may need more support. This can include tuning into factors in our surrounding environment that can cause us to feel intense or upsetting emotions. Tracy shares what have been her emotional triggers over the past two years and what has helped her to cope. Over the past couple of years, two of my biggest emotional triggers have been the loss of control that I was feeling and the unfair situations that some of my students and their families found themselves facing. In the spring of 2020, I felt such a loss of control over everything in my life. I started to have physical reactions to this feeling. My chest always felt tight. I was sad. My heart would feel like it was pounding nonstop inside my chest. I reached out to my doctor for support. I started talking to my friends and family about how I was feeling, which helped so much. As I began to own my feelings and talk about them, the people I was talking to were opening up too and we're sharing how they were feeling, and we were able to relate to one another and support each other. Sometimes just knowing that you're not alone is a gift. Joe discusses how, as a school leader, he has to balance holding the needs of students and families, as well as the needs of staff, and how this can impact him personally when he's trying to support both. This challenge can be exacerbated when he is also experiencing personal difficulties. On a personal level, what I think of as emotional um, triggers is um, 
when we've had students and family members experience something that is a loss or something that um, is very, very difficult, both on the impact of the family. Um, I think also of the emotional triggers as um, when we've had staff that also have had experiences on a very personal level that can't make them feel present and then at the same time how to navigate the expectations of the learners that we have with us. Um, yeah, I think on another level, the emotional triggers on a very personal, personal level is the changes in my family dynamics and then seeing it in others, I find myself incredibly emotionally and very vulnerable. So sometimes not always knowing how to read the situation. And I think I masked it at one point in my life. Um, as, as you get older, you get more vulnerable and softer and mushy. So I attributed that. But that really was um, a way to justify what sometimes didn't emotionally make sense. Um, because I was going through some personal things. And it was kind of carrying into school. And so initially, I think that was very, very difficult as it impacted um, kids and um, separations and family changes and losses and things like that. Increasing self-awareness can also involve reflection on our social identity or how we identify ourselves in relation to others. Individuals may not always be aware of the ways in which their social identities influence how they function in their roles. For educators, social identity can impact interactions they have with students and families, as well as shape their expectations in the classroom. Reflection on social identity may help an individual cultivate cultural humility. The National Association of Social Workers defines cultural humility as the process by which individuals and systems respond respectfully to people of all cultures, languages, classes, races, ethnic backgrounds, religions, spiritual traditions, immigration status, and other diversity factors in a manner that recognizes, affirms, and values the worth of individuals, families, and communities, and protects and preserves the dignity of each. For educators, cultural humility can help shape their work with students whose backgrounds differ from their own. Camila shares that when she was growing up, her family exposed her to people of different backgrounds. This lived experience has inspired her to introduce students to a variety of perspectives in the subject she teaches. She feels this helps her to connect in a meaningful way when her social identity is significantly different from her students and families. One example, my seniors are currently in a poetry analysis unit that asks them to write a literary analysis paper of a poetry collection. Um, so the authors are from Vietnam, Malawi, India, Albania, Pakistan, Lebanon, and China. And based on the rapport that I've built over the year and an awareness of how Eurocentric the curriculum was at our school, I intentionally chose these texts so that some students might readily connect with them, while others might view them as windows to a new perspective. When Tracy's social identity is different from that of her students and families, she focuses on building relationships. I work to build relationships with all of my students and try to do the same with their families in some capacity. Relationships are the foundation for teaching. Building a relationship is where teaching starts. If my students think I don't care about or value them, then why should they care about me or value anything I have to say? 
My students and I need to learn about each other and care about each other. They need to know and believe that I care about them and want them to do their best. If my students feel loved and supported, they will be happier and want to do their best. I communicate with families often. I ask questions and try to learn as much as I can. I take what I learn and try to incorporate it into the classroom. One way that I learn about my students and their families is to ask about the celebrations, customs, and traditions that they follow. This helps me and the other students learn more about each other. The more we learn about each other, the more accepting we become of our differences. For educators, self-awareness can also look like paying attention to the ways in which biases prevent them from genuinely connecting with students and families. Implicit or unconscious biases are automatic internal processes that associate certain characteristics with members of a specific social group. A significant body of research demonstrates that all people have biases and that our biases unconsciously influence behavior. Tracy shares an experience when she became aware of how biases were impacting the way she interacted with a family. As people, we make judgments all the time. And in my own experience, I know that some of the judgments I would initially make were rooted in the biases that I held. Biases that I initially didn't even realize I was holding until I was given the tools to really analyze and question my beliefs and where they came from. There have been times when I've had a parent who lacks involvement. I'm sure teachers can relate to that parent who never returns your calls, emails, messages, misses meetings, and is a no-show to school events. My initial thought used to be that the parent was lazy or didn't care. I would judge them and form a negative opinion about them. Until one year when my student with the uninvolved parent was falling asleep constantly in class. To me, this was the last straw. In my mind, on top of everything this parent wasn't doing, they're not even making sure their kid gets to bed at a decent time so that they have a good night's sleep. I finally talked to this parent, and when I did, I found out that the parent works two jobs in order to provide for their family, and that the reason their child was falling asleep was because the child only got to see their parent when they got home at night from their second job. So this student would wait up to see mom because they hadn't seen them all day. The parent was the opposite of lazy. They missed calls, meetings, and events because they were constantly working. They couldn't afford to lose their job, so they didn't risk requesting a day off. They were working so hard to provide a better life for their child. And here I was creating this negative narrative in my head about them, when all the while they were working harder than most, all for the sake of their child. This experience really made me re-examine the way I judge and perceive people based on the little I know about them or their situation. It is more than important, it is necessary for teachers to recognize, understand, and deal with implicit bias. We all hold implicit bias, and our implicit bias impacts and informs the judgments we make. Joe shared how his school implemented home visits to help school staff better understand students and families and challenge implicit biases that were impacting their ability to partner with them. So I think one of the things that we really started to work on is how can we get to know our community? And one way to do it is for us to go to our families, right? Because we are an institution that we have a leverage, we have power. Families don't have the same power. So one of the ways in which we tried to uh, really try to get closer to understanding our families for teachers was to begin to do home visits. So we began to schedule home visits, and I would go with teachers, and we worked on how do you create a home visit? How do you invite yourself? How do you, what is it that you want to create as an opportunity for interaction with families? Camila reflects on a time when her own biases could have dictated choices she made about curriculum, 
but she was able to notice them and is grateful for the lessons learned through this experience. So a key experience where I became aware of biases impacting the way that I interacted with students and their families happened a few months ago. And essentially, this year I've been a teacher at a new school, even though it's not my first year teaching. And I remember having a parent-teacher conference, and it was a group of parents with me over Zoom. And I was telling them that I felt very strongly that I needed to teach The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. It's a book that I revere, specifically for Morrison's language and her ability to expose the psychological and emotional nightmare of internalized self-hatred, particularly of the main character, who's a young black girl. I was very intimidated by what the book might open up in me, but I also assumed, especially because it's a banned book in so many states, that I would receive a lot of pushback from white parents and students in particular, given the critical race theory battles raging all over this country. I knew that there were things in this book that perhaps some students might understand implicitly based on their lived experience, but that others might never understand, and for that reason, would make them uncomfortable and unwilling to engage in a text that did not center them and their identities. However, I know now without a doubt that this book, especially based on the class discussions that we've had, the students' um, writing that they've submitted, and conversations with parents, especially white parents, thanking me for going there with their children, um, that it's left an indelible mark on them I found out later that students told their parents to buy this book during the unit so that they could follow along and have discussions at home. So as difficult as some of the conversations were in class, my biases about who would connect, how, and why were completely upended, and I'm deeply grateful for it. I thank my students for that. Camila offers further strategies that help her to notice and reduce the effect of biases. A few things that helped me to examine deeply held beliefs that influence how I respond to students is, one, I always try to acknowledge when I'm wrong, when I'm completely off in my assumptions, and to just be more aware of when I am veering towards a bias so that it doesn't become a pattern. Something else that I do is I try to catch myself when I am attributing adult-like traits onto children. I try to remember that they are young, that they're obviously learning, and they might even just be repeating things that they've heard but don't yet understand, and to not judge them in the way that I would judge a full adult, that this should be a space in my classroom where you can share things and be corrected in a way with grace that doesn't make you shut down and not be willing to to open up about things that you may be unsure of. I also try to reflect often, again through writing, to get at the root of why I acted or felt a particular way so that I can move forward and not harm any of my students.
There are several tools that individuals can use to increase self-awareness. One such tool is mindfulness. Tracy shares her definition of mindfulness and a strategy that has helped her this past school year. Mindfulness is trying to be fully present in a moment. For me, it's a moment where I try to concentrate on my breath and calm my thoughts or slow my mind. A mindfulness strategy that I use for myself is to take a moment to just breathe. Close my eyes and stop and breathe. I think it's also been helpful to recognize that I can't control it all. I can only do what I can do in that moment, and that has to be enough. Joe expands the discussion of mindfulness. He discusses being aware of all that he balances and holds onto at one time, and now sometimes he has to acknowledge that he cannot control it all. I guess one of the ways in which I see the connection between mindfulness and self-awareness is that for me, mindfulness um, is the acknowledgement of something. The awareness is the hope to do something about it. And the awareness also involves others in a way that mindfulness doesn't always have to. This is my interpretation. I could be very mindful of something happening, but the awareness forces me, as it should, is to really look at the impact on others as it's affecting me and it's affecting others. If you look at, they did a study that educators make more than 100 decisions in a day. So when you think about that, how are you fully present for all those 100 moments? That's nearly impossible. And so I think of of how do we try to do right by kids and at the same time in that brief moment of a brush stroke is see who are you impacted, who is being impacted by this, who are you impacting, and how do you do right by the families, the students, our teachers, and the community that we care for. Our educators highlight other strategies and practices that they use to increase their own self-awareness. Some of the strategies that help me to increase my self-awareness, a lot of it is tied to writing. Um, I write every single day. I see it very similar to breathing in a way, and it helps me to process things and be able to write something down and then read it back to myself and see if what I'm actually feeling is at the root of why I'm acting in a certain way. Um, something else that I also do to increase self-awareness is um, I have different quotes in my classroom chalkboard that have been culled together by myself and my students that are constant reminders to be present. I've tried to uh, do some self-care through exercise, through cooking, through being very mindful. I've also begun to reinterpret what I believe is a relationship or any interaction when I start to walk into my building is, how will I receive the day? How will I receive the day? Rather than wonder about what's coming at me, it's how will I receive it? And that has helped me think a little bit more about my own response rather than reaction, because our tendency is to react as humans, especially when things are coming at us. So some days are better than others. A strategy I use to help increase my self-awareness is reflecting, sometimes on my own and sometimes with others, on the ways I feel or react to situations and trying to learn and grow from it. For example, there are times when I get frustrated with the amount of mess my students are making while playing at centers, and I'll react in a negative way. I might say something like, why is this such a mess? Who's going to clean this up? Then I'll ask myself, why am I getting so frustrated with my kids for making a mess while playing? I know that when kids are engaged and playing, it can get messy. 
In fact, it's usually a sign of how immersed they are in the activity. I know this. I expect this. When situations like this happen, I try to figure out the root of my frustration. My reactions typically have nothing to do with my students or the mess they have made. It's because I'm feeling stressed, overwhelmed, or under pressure in another area of my life, and I'm letting those feelings impact my reaction to things. Besides self-reflection, I also find spaces in my day to connect with my team, to vent my feelings, and get feedback from them. I rely on their words and support so much and often find that by talking things out, I also gain a new perspective. And they're able to reaffirm for me that I'm doing my best and my best is okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Views of Resilience, what school communities and families learned during the pandemic, developed by BCHMP's Training and Access Project, or TAP. Please access viewsofresiliencepodcast.com to download our free resources for educators, fill out a brief post-survey about this content, find the transcripts and references for this podcast, and learn more about our other trainings and videos for school staff on social-emotional learning and behavioral health in schools. We hope you join us for the other episodes within this podcast series. This podcast series was created by the Training and Access Project, TAP, a part of BCHMP. Content was developed by Andy Hernandez, Gisela Mendezabo, and Karen Capraro, with production support from Priscilla Paulino, and produced by Giro Studio. This episode was narrated by Molly Jordan.